This week on FX Guide TV. We're in Los Angeles for the unveiling of the new Canon EOS line of cinema cameras, and then at Red for the unveiling of the final version of Scarlet. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale, and welcome to a special FX Guide TV. On September 15th this year, one blogger posted, a flare went up from Canon as the company teased it was making a historic global announcement on the 3rd of November with the title, The Story Begins. Almost immediately, Red answered with its announcement that on the same day, the final version of the new Scarlet would be released and go on sale only an hour later. We're told that the new Scarlet camera, now being a professional camera, is so cool that Red founder Jim Jannard joked about retiring if people weren't impressed with it. Fighting words indeed. Meanwhile, in a highly secretive move that we're more used to from Apple than Canon, the world's film press were invited to this mysterious press event in LA at the Paramount backlot, without any idea what Canon was going to show. And of course, Mike and John were there to cover it for us firsthand. Well, actually, they were there for both events, Canon and Red. It's been an amazing day, but in many respects, the map of digital cinematography now looks quite different looking forward. That's right, Andrew. We had a heck of a day. We're here at the end of a long day, and this day was always going to be pretty big. Canon announced they were going to be releasing some amazingly new stuff aimed at the Hollywood community. So we were at the Paramount Studios for that, but no sooner had Canon even announced today was going to happen than Red announced that they were going to have a new version or announcement or whatever on Scarlet. We just didn't know. So we ended up at the Red Studios, but of course we started the day out at Paramount at the Canon event. Yeah, really nice event, a huge event and a beautiful auditorium and a lot of people showed up. In fact, I want to say uh, thank a lot of you for showing up at Effects Guide for our first foray or attempt into live blogging, which is a lot harder than work. Even though we doubled our server, it ended up taking the server down. Uh, we switched over to Twitter and got a ton of followers, so thanks for that. And hopefully we'll do more of that in the future when on the tech side will work out better. But uh, the Canon event opened up with a speech from the chairman and CEO and then dove right into some really nice projects that were photographed using the new Cam Canon camera. Yeah, Canon had got about five filmmakers and they had uh, the camera for some time and they got to actually make some either short films or showed us parts of larger projects they were working on. So for example, Ron Howard was there and he had a project that he was um, showing us a trailer of and then there was Sam Nicholson who just did a gorgeous kind of really? Blade Runner-esque piece. That was phenomenal. I think they spent five days shooting that. And another one of the filmmakers and one of the ones that I think produced one of the finest films was Vincent LaFarette. Now Vincent produced a really great film for a couple of reasons. Not only did I, I think it was actually a good film, uh, and he had some great people working on it, like our friends Jim Ashwitz, who did some of the uh, vortex effects and stuff, and really nice color grading. Mm -hmm. But a couple of filmmakers decided to make films that absolutely hit the walls of what the camera could do in low light. So incredibly ridiculous off the dial low light stuff, which I think actually didn't go that well. I think at the very extreme end, it kind of looked noisy. But Vincent really, I think, captured the best of the camera, even though he's still pushing it hard mm -hmm. and doing really uh, aggressive stuff with it. It all looked just beautiful on the large screen.
it's one of the things was just the amazing people that were in the audience even. I mean, uh, there was JJ Abrams was there, Rodriguez was there, and I looked over a couple of seats to my left and was stunned to see Martin Scorsese sitting there. Yeah, they actually had him come up and, and speak on stage about kind of what it means to have this new technology in the hands of filmmakers. If you think about what's happened over the last several years, it really is an exciting time with things changing so quickly. And so he kind of spoke to that and allowing, you know, basically letting filmmakers become more creative. So painting took us deeper within individual perception, but photography wa was really the immediate, the here and the now. And of course, at the turn of the 20th century, images started to move at such a rate that, uh, you know, people experienced uh, the illusion of motion. And we still do. This is one illusion we don't want to lose. And what the cinema has given us, from the Lumiere brothers and George Maillet's through all the filmmakers who were working at that time, is incomparable. And it humbles me to, to even think about the history of movies, what we've captured of ourselves in these recorded images, what they transmit to us of the people who made them, and very interestingly, of the time in which they existed. Yes, of course we need to tell stories, to paint, to assemble, to compose, and to film. These, I really believe these new tools that Canon has created allow for a much closer and more intimate relationship between the filmmakers and the world they're filming than ever before. So I thank you for that on behalf of all the filmmakers of the future. And I thank you for inviting me here today, Mr. Mitterai. Welcome to Hollywood. Okay, but you probably want to know the specs on the camera. We certainly did. Um, and I've got to say, some of those specs took a heck of a long time coming, though we were lucky because they did have a Q&A time and we actually got to even ask some of our own questions. Um, but how would you describe the camera, first and foremost, John? Well, I think it's a really solid answer to kind of what's been going on in the industry. I mean, it's placement of it. But it's interesting, let's not talk tech specs right away, but every single filmmaker who took part in the panel talked about one thing, and it's something that Mike... Uh, Stu and I actually realized in New Zealand when we started playing with the Epic, and that's the form factor of the camera. Again, if you compare it to some of the major big cameras of the past, even the Alexa and the Red One and things like that, compare the size of this camera that you hold in your hands with its mobility, it really enables you to do things that are really creative and different from what you were able to do in the past. Yeah, I mean the camera literally would sit about in the palm of your hand here, and that's a bit bigger than uh, a 5D, 5D in yeah. terms of depth but it's kind of narrow, though there is a side handle that can attach, if you've ever seen the Epic side handle, the same idea, uh, attaching side handle, and there's an eyepiece, so unlike the F3, you can actually look through a, an EVF yeah. uh, rather than just having to look at a flip-out screen, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, but then you get into the tech specs and what it has, and it has, you know, it's got, well, let's get in the sensor, because I know that's yeah. really an important piece of the puzzle. So the sensor is basically a Super 35 sensor, and what's really interesting about it is technologically how it pulls this uh, high resolution, high dynamic range, and really nice non-line skipping, non-moray pattern um, solution. Because let's face it, that's the problem with the 5D. Great glass, great lenses, but the sensor only puts out a fairly heavily compressed uh, image. Well, this new camera also puts out a compressed image. It's putting out at about 50 megabits a second, and it's going to, there are dual CF cards in the side of the camera, so you can either record to one or both simultaneously if you want to have an instant backup on as you're filming. Um, but what's happening with the sensor is it's double HD in the sense that it's like a quad HD frame, but it's still a CMOS chip. Now, as you can see in this diagram, a CMOS chip obviously has this characteristic pattern of going green, red, green, red, green, red, and the next line goes green, blue, green, blue, and then back to green, red again. 
The point about this is that you have quite twice as much green as you do red and blue. But because it's exactly double HD in both left uh, and right and up and down, they're literally just taking every sort of second line of the blue, every second line, which of course on the other side is the red. So they get a natural 1920 by 1080 out of the blue and the red. The green, however, they have twice as much information for. So they then do a four pixel way average to produce a better green signal. Now, the advantage of this is you don't get the line dropping because before you used to sort of put it together and then throw away lines, which caused the moray pattern. Now, uh, you're actually doing a kind of an averaging of the double green. So you've got a sort of a down resing from the 4K green channel to a 2K green channel and you're not dropping anything out in the red and the blue because that's what you had anyway. So you kind of get a natural HD. Yeah, and of course most of your luminous information it comes from the green channel as well as your detail in essence when you look at it in that standpoint. So effectively what they're doing is they're kind of taking away that post-processing what had to be done in the past and they're kind of giving that to you in a final file at 1920 by 1080. In a sense it's a CMOS chip with a mosaic pattern where you ignore the mosaicing by not demosaicing. Uh, at least you only do it on the green channel right. effectively uh, where you have lots of information. So the images just do look really, really sharp and really good. The other thing about it is just this astonishing ISO range. Now we talked before that some filmmakers were hitting it really hard. Well, I'll give you some numbers on that. The shots that I didn't like, John, in the, some of the, and this is not stuff that uh, any of the directors we've mentioned shot, but some of the directors shot at 20,000 ISO. And at that level, I actually thought it was grainy and unacceptable on the big screen. It looked great from the very back row of the big screen, but I, you know, you couldn't tell anything from there. Down in the Scorsese <laughs> seats, it didn't look so good. Um, but if you back it off, uh, for example, a lot of the Vincent stuff you saw earlier was shot at uh, 3,200, which to me is an astonishingly high number, but still he considered that to be acceptable, similar to 800 on other cameras. So obviously you can push this camera a heck of a lot further than normal, but you can't push it you know, to ridiculous extremes perhaps that the, the knobs allow you to go to. I should also point out that uh, one of the, the Canon guys, uh, Larry, discussed that aspect of it. He said that they rated it about uh, 800 and at 800 it's got 12 stops latitude. Yeah, really, really impressive and it'll be nice to see what gets in the hands and that's going to be actually targeting to ship worldwide in January at kind of a targeted price point around uh, $20,000. I actually made a point of checking it was worldwide. <laughs> and, and you should thank this guy for actually asking the question. You know, there were actually several questions beforehand that didn't even ask that question. It's like, It was kind of funny that they didn't say, yeah, either when it was shipping <laughs> or how much it was. Because that's, that's, you know. Yeah, an important part of it's it. It's not a good camera at any price. It's a good camera for the budget, for what you're trying to do. And so that in mind, yeah. where do you think this is aimed at? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we're, t we're actually talking internally about the kind of stuff we do for Effects Guy TV and then filming effects production, but I think it is kind of been targeted between the, what the, the F3 and the, what the Alexa probably, I think, in role. I mean, it's clearly a step up from what they have now in their video prosumer range at Canon. Clearly a step up from that. I'm glad you mentioned the Alexa because one of the things the Alexa does is it has a, a raw output. Now, this camera does not have a raw output, mm -hmm. but Alexa manages to record that raw output by normally going out to a codex box. In fact, Codex is rebadged by ARRI, and you can buy a Codex box through ARRI as being an onboard recorder. And any of you that are with us with FX PhD will know we really like the Codex box. Well, Codex was singled out today yeah. that Canon's already been working with Codex to do a similar thing. Now, it can't record RAW because it doesn't have a RAW output, but it does have a Canon log file that'll come out 1920 by 1080 
in a log format, uncompressed through an HD SDI output. So for any of you that have tried to do that with the Canons, with the 5Ds, and been struggling with only uh, HDMI outputs, this is a really welcome piece of news. Yeah, and it sounds like mostly everyone would use that Canon log. They're really interested in pushing the range because every single filmmaker who did stuff today actually used Canon log as opposed to any other type of format. But and the format that is on the card is yeah. what, MXF, uh, 50 megabits a second, I think, as we said, and that can be natively edited in like uh, uh, Premiere Premier Pro, Avid, I think they but said. But not announced, in Final Cut. But not in yeah, the old Final Cut or the new Final Cut, I guess, at, at this point in time. But again, that was the Canon event. That wrapped up, what, around uh, 5 <laughs> o'clock. And we had like a two block or, well, I don't know, 10 well, minute ride over to yeah, Red after Studios. After the 10 minutes of me trying to find my lost uh, <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> interesting event and I, I personally like we both didn't uh, think about kind of what was going to happen to that event and we walked in uh, to this darkened room and up on the screen literally is the red user net website so it's effectively I mean a, a room of people who were there basically watching what you at home could have been doing as well and I'm like going okay well this will be kind of interesting. If you've ever been to red <laughs> studios which are the old uh, studios from the Lucille Ball days there's an entire sound stage off to one side that is kind of where Jim's office is and stuff we weren't there <laughs> We were in the other, so it was literally like a soundstage, empty, apart from some fold-out chairs and this giant screen, which would be, I guess, a bit, a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, because obviously you kind of were maybe, but they had never promised anything no, more than that. That was fun, I mean, to go there and with a lot of people who were interested in the product. Except for as 6 o'clock came around for the big announcement, it became incredibly apparent that even that wasn't going to work. Yeah, exactly. They had uh, problems with the website. Probably a combination of uh, definitely overload from what they said, several hundred thousand people actually trying to get in and look at the forms. And then on top of that, apparently some, they said there were some people uh, doing kind of denial service attacks as well. But just frankly, the 200,000 people hitting their forms or whatever is going to cause that problem. I mean, ask me today about that. You know a thing or two. Yeah. No, well, they had actually upped their servers. And I actually spoke to one of the engineers yeah. who said he did think it was a deliberate denial of service attack. But whatever it was, that wasn't going to fly. So we were now thinking, we, here we are at this rather cold uh, soundstage, sitting on some chairs with no one from senior management in the room, um, watching a screen that wouldn't refresh. And it didn't really, at that point, look like this was the best place to be uh, in LA on a, uh, on a Thursday night. But then all of that changed. All that changed when uh, Jim Jarnard walked out with a mic and said he's going to do the presentation there live and let basically everyone in the room kind of crowdsource and Twitter the event so that people elsewhere around the world could actually find out what was going on, which I thought was incredibly cool. I just give it absolute points I, to Jim for this because what could have been a PR disaster, <laughs> having some of your most kind of loyal customers in a room suddenly feeling completely gypped that they turned up to a non-event, turned into uh, a religious rally as basically Jim basically opened up for questions, discussed anything, allowed us to take photos, which some of which you're seeing now, mm -hmm. Um, had a lot of response from the community and then because there was such a good response from the community and because people were seeing so enthusiastic about the details we're about to tell you, he actually said anyone in the room would immediately go to the head of the queue if you wanted to buy one of these new Scarlets. 
Which begs the question, John, <laughs> what did he say and did you want to buy a Scarlet? <laughs> um, I think so. I think we're going to buy it. I mean, what's interesting about it is it's effectively, I don't know you could call it, whether you call it little sister of, of Epic effectively, but well, it's... Well, Jim did joke about that, right? Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. And, and basically the idea is in the process of making all their chips for Epic, uh, they actually run into a large number of rejections because the tolerances for what you need to get through the kind of computing, computing that's done are very low or high. Uh, bad yields. Bad, bad yields, actually, better way of saying it. So what they end up with is they end up with actually a bunch of really good chips that just don't quite meet that threshold that you need to do when you're doing HDRX in Epic at the in resolution they're doing it. So what they're doing is actually effectively giving you an Epic with one of these good chips, but just not super chips. Yeah, and it isn't just the sensor we're talking about here. We're talking about yeah. the actual electronics encoding because the same chip that you get in an Epic is now in a Scarlet. It looks like the same body, mm -hmm. though it's painted gray instead of black. But as John says, it can't hit the data rates because it doesn't have the throughput to have the sustained high-level grunt. Because let's face it, we always said that the Epic was at the bleeding edge. So, and, and also, just for stats, they are talking 50 megabytes a second <laughs> as opposed to Canon's 50 megabits a second. So it's like eight, nine times the amount of data that they're trying to pump through when going at these high frame rates in HDRX. I mean, if you take a look at this chart, this is what Mike's talking about. I mean, you can see kind of the at 5K, you're going to end up getting about 12 frames per second maximum or six frames per second in HDRX. That's kind of an equivalent of uh, red code five to one. Then at 4K, that ends up going up to about 25 frames per second maximum, or 12 frames per second um, at HDRX. As you can see, when you're dropping in resolution, the frame rates get higher, both in the regular uh, format as well as HDRX, and various different uh, red code uh, rates from 3 to 1 to 7 as 1 as well. So, I mean, you could, that chip or that chart kind of shows you what you're able to do with the camera, and I think that chart actually hits a sweet spot for a lot of people, frankly. Absolutely. I mean, Spider-Man, for example, shot on the Epic, was shot at about 6 to 1 compression. And so there's nothing wrong with 6 to 1. That's completely reasonable. The thing is, the HDRX is two entire frames, uh, one being the A-Track and one being the X. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it for a second, if you were doing something uh, and you switch on HDRX, every time I do that on my Epic, it drops to half the frame rate. So clearly, trying to pump through these high frame rates in HDRX just aren't going to be possible on Scarlet. But then, they compensate with that by making it pretty dramatically cheaper. Yeah, it's really amazing. And, and I think for, uh, from our standpoint, the pr and price point, kind of what I would call fully loaded, right, uh, with a Canon mount, uh, prices in around, what, $12,000 um, with a Canon mount. They also have a PL mount that's ending up shipping in November. But I think from my standpoint, why I find it compelling um, is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do ends up being interviews with people and, and, and so forth. And I find and when the toggle rates on the 5D that we're using now to be problematic. And now what I'm going to get is I'm going to get a much nicer looking image from my standpoint, much higher quality, even have some room for repositioning. And if I need to, I can actually go out and shoot some effects footage as well. Now, on the other hand, I can't do one of your favorite things, which is to go out and shoot some really high speed footage at really high res. Yeah. Now, I should say that at the Canon event, they were saying that they were shooting green screen it, uh, and it was working like a treat. So mm -hmm. we're not saying that you can't do that, but it is the case. I'm talking the 5D is what I meant by right, it. Right, yeah. yeah. No, but at, the, but at the data rates we're talking about, the Epic slash Scarlet is just pumping a heck of a lot more data. Now, there's any which way you cut it, you just got a lot more data going out to the cards because they're now going out to the SSD cards, as is standard, um, and not out to CF cards. And of course, that's a big limitation for Canon. Um, but interestingly, the Canon is, you know, priced at 20 grand. This is priced entry level at like 
9750, I think was the, the number, wasn't it? Yeah. So red is being pretty aggressive. Yeah, and I think actually you made a really good point in your Twitter feed about how close the Scarlet is to the Epic and the idea that you could actually use both of them on the same stereoscopic rig. Yeah, you could, if, you, if you're willing to turn the, the values down, if you like, on the, uh, obviously you wouldn't be shooting HDRX, for example, at highest frame rates. If you turn the values down on the Epic, you could put an Epic gen-locked with a Scarlet with the same lenses and shoot stereoscopically completely successfully. And any peripheral devices that you might have, so for example, a side handle, um, an EVF, anything, a cable, will all be the same because it's basically the same body. It's just the B-grade electronics, if you want to call it that, at a dramatically reduced price. Yeah, really outstanding. So actually two really fantastic cameras, I think, different tools for different jobs. Uh, for you know, co more common footage, we're going to have to wait till January, until it's shipping uh, for the Canon. But of course, for the Scarlet, you can kind of look at the footage now because it's effectively going to be what you're getting from the Epic. Yeah, now for those of you that were keeping tracks, there is no fixed lens, there is no two-thirds inch Scarlet, there is no 3K for 3K, they just none of that is exists. It's all off the table. All there is is basically a baby Epic with sort of reduced specs, but not not done arbitrarily by being turned down in software inside. And then, of course, the full-blown uh, Epic. But here's the really interesting thing about this, and I, I think this was a point that was picked up actually first by the RED staff themselves. If you're watching our NAB coverage, you'll know that there's a new chip coming for the Epic, which mm -hmm. is the Dragon chip. Dragon chip promises mm, lots of interesting things. But if this is the same camera body, could I not ask RED to upgrade my Scarlet to that Dragon chip, and that was something that Jim answered. Yeah, that was actually, and the answer is yes, you'll be able to do that, which I think is fantastic. Again, future-proofing, similar to what they did actually with the Red One as well, is actually allowing you to actually upgrade your sensor. That's one thing I like about that. But if you're an Epic owner, it's okay, because they're going to have to upgrade some of the electronics to bring it up to yeah. Epic level. It will actually be more expensive to go from a Scarlet up to the Dragon than it will be to go to Epic to Dragon. So if you bought an Epic, you're not blowing your... You know, it's not suddenly that you've you're right. in a bad position. Um, you'll be protected in the sense that no matter what that upgrade price is, it'll always be more on Scarlet simply to bring it up to spec and then upgrade it up to the Dragon. But I think Dragon, at this point, John, really needs to deliver on high ISO because I would say that is the card that Canon absolutely played today um, and masterfully so. I would say a lot of people are playing that. I mean, that, that seems to be the thing that, you know, you can see the points that they're ticking off and comparing themselves with red in their sights and the epic in their sights, and that is certainly one of them. That everyone spoke to that. Basically, all the things they showed today spoke to that, so I think it'll be an interesting uh, time period coming up, and good point about the, the sensor. And a lot of people were, you know, pointing out that uh, this 4K chip in the Canon was only outputting um, 2K, but it, of course it's actually outputting 1920 by 1080 and for some people in TV, that's perfect. But for others, it's not cinematic enough because they want to have that extra resolution. And I've got to say, I can see both sides of that argument. Yeah, I mean, coming from, I appreciate the times, be able to reposition, get a little blow up on something and have that resolution available to you. But again, I'm sure it puts out nice pictures. And with all the stuff that's broadcast at that resolution, it's going to really certainly find a place in the market. So red shipping before Christmas. Um, and red made a promise that by January slash February, <laughs> They'll have turned red from the company that says they're going to deliver and doesn't to a company that's regularly hitting all its deadlines. Now, it may still have a backlog because of the popularity of the camera, but it's certainly not going to be in a bad manufacturing point of view. And Jim made quite a point about this um, this evening. I've got to say, though, on the Canon side of things today, John, I was very impressed at how committed they seemed to the cinema market. Because up until now, the EOS line really looked like no one noticed the 5D market. Yeah, well, they actually even opened up a technology center 
here in Los Angeles to allow them to do that. And that involves like same day or in-site uh, repairs and so forth, training classes. And I think they're really trying to show that they're here to listen to the community. Maybe something they feel and people in the community didn't feel they did as well a job or as good a job as they uh, should have in the past. So I think that was nice to see. And another surprise move that happened even later in the day, which you might think we were all out of <laughs> tricks, but literally for us, after that whole Canon event was over, Canon sent us a press release pointing out that they also have here in Los Angeles and they're showing a prototype high-end JPEG compressed in a form factor, John, that looks pretty much like a 1D. Yeah, it certainly is. It's, it's an EOS, so I imagine designed as a replacement series for the 5D and 7D and so forth. And again, really an attractive camera that I can see carrying around for both stills and video. Well, look, we're here now and obviously about to open the bar and try and get this out tonight for you. But we're going to need a couple of days to process some of this information. And that's great because on Monday, uh, American time, uh, Jason and I will be doing the Red Center podcast. And in the Red Center podcast, we actually have an interview with Vincent Lafarette, who he talks to Jason about his hands-on experiences with the camera, which is awesome. And Jason and I'll have like an in-depth discussion of the implications we think both the Red and the Canon announcement are for the industry. So. I want to thank Jeff Huser for his great work in helping us put this together. He's behind the scenes tonight, but thank you, Jeff. And thanks to those of you who actually follow us on FX Guide to help crash the site today. We actually really do appreciate you guys uh, watching and reading our stuff and following us on Twitter, so thanks for that. As Mike said, that's it from here in Los Angeles. Let's head down to Sydney and Angie. For more on this, listen to the 100th episode of the RC Podcast with Jason and Mike discussing the implications of this news and the reaction to it from around the world. Finally, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash fxguidenews. And until next time, when we cover Roland Emmerich's Anonymous, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.